morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Butt in Washington. Today is Wednesday, January 18, and here are some of the stories we are covering. News reports the Ethiopia's Chief Justice and her deputy have resigned. Both the judges see that uh, the courts don't have the power that they are entrusted to have, as opposed to the police and the military. Analysts say Somalia's government needs to protect gains in war against al-Shabaab. Kenya's president confirms a plot to abduct and kill the chair of the country's electoral commission during the contested 2022 general elections. UNICEF says it helped rescue dozens of women and children abducted from South Sudan's Greater Pibo administrative area. The government of Eswatini denies hiring mercenaries to assassinate its political opponents. If we have hired hitmen and mercenaries from South Africa, why would those mercenaries and hitmen come to Eswatin when the target is back there in the backyard of where they come from? And Malawi schools reopened despite rising cholera cases. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. The Chief Justice of Ethiopia, Miyaza Ashanafi, and her deputy, Solomon Areda, resigned on Tuesday. News reports the parliament named their replacements. The media did not say what led to the resignations. However, political analyst Fezar Abdi Roble tells me the resignations might be due to a disagreement with Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed over the power of the police. This is uh, very troublesome in a way. Because in Abiy's uh, ascension to power, he paraded Naza Shinifo as the first female Supreme Court judge, sign of his big change, liberalization and also equity and what have you. I think for her to resign, air is showing that his agenda is being tra- you know, thwarted from what he said initially in 2018. And number two, the both judges see that uh, the courts don't have the power that they are entrusted to have, as opposed to the police and the military, which are doing extrajudicial assessment, mainly in Addis Ababa. So this is a dissatisfaction on their part and shows that they are no longer happy with what the government of Abiy is doing. So you are saying the Ethiopian Supreme Court is not as powerful as police? They are not. And that is where their uh, dissatisfaction is coming from. They have been watching and seeing arbitrary arrests of political leaders and dissidents and also regular citizens who are being arrested without office uh, corpus most of the time. And they try several times behind the scenes to register their indignance about the extra hand military and police forces, particularly in the area of Addis Ababa, are doing and to no avail. So this is the highest level of uh, showing disappointment, dissatisfaction. They don't want to be party to a system that is contrary to the judicial system that they have uh, voted to support and upheld. I mean, I'm reading a line that says that uh, the deputy, Salomon, was recently appointed as uh, a half-time judge of the United Nations Dispute Tribunal. Is it possible that perhaps he's given way to take this new position? No, I think that he would not do that without having uh, permission from his uh, superiors, and that would be the other who was the supreme you know, judge. I don't think he would be able to do that without consulting uh, the legal. As you heard that article, he's a legal giant from the point of view of that article. But I think it 
Ethiopia has been having uh, also ethnic problems, and I assume both uh, Meaza and Solomon could be disappointed and dissatisfied with the politics that's taking place in the country in general, where large numbers of Amhara have initially supported Prime Minister Abiy, and now they are gravitating to the opposite side of his political agenda. And uh, that could also be behind the scene. But I think the way that they are expressing their uh, reason for why they are designing is because they say that there is extrajudicial power, police and military, Fisal Abdi Rubli is a political analyst. He was speaking with us from Los Angeles, California. Somalis are hailing the capture of the port town of Haradere as a major victory in the fight against the Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab. The port, once a base for Somali pirates, was a key revenue source for the militants, but analysts say it will be a challenge to hold on to Haradere and other territories seized from the militants while winning over locals. Akme Mohammed reports from Mogadishu. The capture of Haradere is perhaps the single biggest trophy for the Somali army and clan militias who have been waging a ground offensive against the Shabab since July. At the height of piracy in Somalia in 2011, Haradere was the main operating port for pirates hijacking ships at sea for ransom. But it was seized by a Shabab, which has used it since then to generate revenue by taxing imported goods. Somali Defense Minister Abdikatir Noor lauded the capture of Haradere, which adds to a growing list of towns and villages falling into government hands. He said, we want to thank all armed forces, particularly Somali army, which made it possible to dislodge the enemy from two districts, which are Galaat and Haradere districts. Shoki Hayir. A lecturer at Simat University and a conflict researcher told viewers the capture of Haradere was a significant step for the military campaign, which has been running for close to eight months. He said it's a historic victory achieved by Somali and the local forces. It is a victory that boosts the morale of the troops and a significant achievement registered by the government led by Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, and this will speed up operation to liberate the country. Despite this series of victories by Somali army, Ayer says the government will need to build the confidence of local communities and quickly establish a presence to ensure these newly liberated areas do not fall back into Ashabab hands. He said it is good for the top government leaders to visit the liberated areas urgently to boost the morale of the locals and engage with them as the areas were under Ashabab control for a long time. He said it's also important for the armed forces and local militias to establish bases in the liberated areas to avoid the loss of those areas once again. Ahmed Hadi, the director of Somali Civic House, a policy and governance think tank in Mogadishu, says the capture of Haradere is not only a victory for the military, but for the locals. He said the capture of Haradere is an important move as it is part of plan to decentralize the administration. The town is also crucial for the movement of people and goods because those areas had been locked off from the rest of the country for a long time. Hadi also said the government will need to be ready for possible local conflicts over resources. Last year, 
President Mahmoud declared all-out war against Al-Shabaab, which has been fighting Somali government for the past 15 years. The government says it's also waging financial warfare against the group. President Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud told a gathering in Mogadishu last week that the government has closed 250 bank accounts and seven mobile money accounts suspected to be linked to Al-Shabaab. This move, he said, is denying the militant group money to fund its operations. Ahmed Mohamed for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. Kenyan President William Ruto says there was a plot to abduct and kill the chair of the country's Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission, also known as the IEBC, during the contested 2022 general elections. On Monday this week, IEBC chair Wafula Chibukati called on President Ruto to launch a public investigation into what he calls attempts to undermine the independence of the board during the vote. According to the local media, Ruto on Tuesday said the plot was approved by, quote, the highest office and the aim was to install friendly commissioners that would eventually announce a candidate that was not elected by the people. Joseph Kiyoko is a Kenyan political analyst. He tells me it is incumbent on President Ruto to create an independent body of inquiry to uncover the people in, quote, highest office that approved the plan to abduct and kill the IEBC chair. And you know, as a president, he's the one who receives the highest level of intelligence in this country. So he will not be speaking in vain the things he said. So as a person, what he's done is that he's given credence to the rumor mill so that it does not appear that his words are vain. It is incubated on him to create that commission of inquiry so that those who feel aggrieved by his words can counter them in a public forum and they can do or can provide evidence of otherwise of what the president has done. I think he has set the tempo. The president has identified the four commissioners who were appointed at the tail end by both the former president Uhuru and the former prime minister Raila Odinka, who are uh, members of the Azimio coalition. But those four commissioners were appointed specifically to come and muddle up the election. So what the president has spoken today, it cannot be left just there. It has to be interrogated. So that we can address also the question of appointment of commissioners in the independent commission. What do you make of that? That he did not say who were the senior politicians behind it. I think uh, if he would do that, then he would prejudice the public conversation that needs to occur. He is clever enough to know that he's just dropping in to carry the public to understanding the legitimate reason why the public inquiry has to be there. Now, in terms of the name, they must come from the people who are harassed, and that will come from Chibukati and the other commissioners, they must come out properly once that commission is created. They must come out and say, these are the people who came out to harass us. And that's the conversation that will happen in the public commission of inquiry. President Ruto goes into detail, talk about how deep the mechanism was that they were to infiltrate the IEBC by introducing, at its highest level, four sleeper commissioners. What can you tell us? You know, these four sleeper commissioners, you need to start from the process of how they were appointed, how the rules for the selection panel was changed to favor a single actor in the 2022 election. The majority of the members of the selection panel came from the Jubilee and let's say the Azimio coalition, which was parties that supported the President Uru Kenyatta and parties that supported Raila Odinga. So once the selection panel was uh, 
formed in a partisan manner. They went about and nominated four commissioners from people who are close associates to them. People whose mandate was not even about other elections, but their role was to come and do what they did in Bomas, come and issue statements like they did. And that is why the scripture cell adjective to describe them fits. Because all through, you could see them in Bomas reading results, you could see them making pronouncement on the floor, but then at the last minute, they came up with this terminology of this election is opaque. Yet there had been part and parcel of the process up to the tail end of it. So the only adjective that can describe them is what the president has said. They were pre-perfect. They were just meant to be awakened at that particular moment to disrupt the announcement and to create doubt into the legitimacy of the will of the people. That was Joseph Kiyoko, a Kenyan political analyst, speaking with me from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. You are listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I am James Barton, Washington. Today is Wednesday, January 18. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The United Nations Children's Agency, UNICEF, says it has rescued dozens of abducted women and children and returned them to authorities in the Greater Pibor Administrative Area of South Sudan. This after months of intercommunal fighting between government in the area and those in neighboring Jonglia State. Charlton Doki has this report for VOA from Juba. UNICEF condemns the recent abductions of women and children. The rape, sexual violence, physical beatings and gross deprivations inflicted upon upwards of 88 people in Greater Pibor Administrative Area. That's Emma Tuck, UNICEF's emergency specialist in South Sudan. Tuck says there is no justification for the abuses carried out against women and children during recent intercommunal fighting in the Greater Pibor Administrative Area. The abduction of children has severe consequences on the physical and psychological well-being of children, their families and their communities, with almost certain long-term consequences. Dozens of women and children were abducted after a group of armed militiamen, known as the White Army from neighboring Jonglei State, attacked parts of Greater Pibor administrative area. Speaking by phone from Bor earlier today, Jonglei State Information Minister John Samuel Manyon told South Sudan in focus, state officials have rescued more than 80 abductees. In our first phase, we recovered 68 and we handed them over. So after that, we were continuing with our search. We have uh, recovered 20 and we have handed them over today. 20 children have been handed over today to the government of Greater Pibor Administrative Area through uh, UNICEF. So that's making a total of 88 abductees so far. 67 children and 21 women were rescued, said Manuan. Tuck commended local authorities in Greater Pibor and Jonglei for working to ensure the abductees were freed and reunited with their families. She says UNICEF will continue to work with the South Sudan government and other aid agencies to ensure the former abductees are supported. The work of these actors together is ensuring rapid family tracing and reunification processes are initiated for the affected families. This is the very first step in what's likely to be a very long journey of reintegration and healing. 
Tuck says UNICEF is committed to ensure that children in South Sudan are protected and that those who have been abducted are rescued. Last week, Jongle authorities said they recovered and airlifted more than 60 abducted women and children from the state to the greater Pibor area. Manyuan says state authorities will continue searching in the villages to ensure that women and children who were abducted by militiamen are rescued and reunited with their families. We have directed the county commissioners uh, the, to sit down with the chief, the youth leaders, and uh, make sure every child, a woman that uh, was abducted there, uh, is handed over to the authority. So our efforts continue, and we hope uh, any child that is and a woman who is still outside there uh, in the hands of the abductors uh, will be recovered and handed over to greater people. Tuck calls on all parties in South Sudan to adhere to the conventions of the rights of the child and to ensure that children are not abducted or abused. For VOA News, I am Charlton Doki in Juba. The spokesperson for the government of Eswatini, formerly Swaziland, says the administration does not hire mercenaries to assassinate its political opponents or activists. Alfios Untumalo says it is not possible for the government to hire outsiders to kill its own citizens. This after the Swaziland Solidarity Network, which is seeking a democratic Eswatini, has accused the government of hiring a private military company that it says used to work for the apartheid government of South Africa to kill political activists. Government spokesperson Zumalo tells me the Solidarity Network is engaged in a false flag operation. The people who are driving this narrative and who have altered this narrative are based somewhere in a neighborhood country, a country that has given them sanctuary, a country that has allowed them to use their soil as a launching lily pad against our country. If we have hired hitmen and mercenaries from South Africa, as they claim in the write-ups, why would those mercenaries and hitmen come to Eswatini when the target is back there? in the backyard of where they come from. There have been some deaths in Eswatini recently. For example, I speak of the, I think it's the Deputy Secretary General of the newly formed political party. Is your government investigating what's behind these murders? Yes, the government of Eswatini, like any other government, would definitely investigate a mysterious or unexplained or unknown murder of any person, any citizen, irrespective of the political belief or affiliation of that particular person. The investigations are underway. The investigations are being carried out in a professional way. And as a government, we are hoping that the truth shall be established. You said that uh, your critics, some of them, are getting money just to smear your country. Where are they getting the money? They know where they're getting the money from. They should tell you. According to these critics now that uh, you have white people who are normally seen in roadblocks and working with your police and the armies. I would not say that is not true, because what you must understand, my brother, for instance, security forces and security clusters all over the world will have cooperation agreements with either the neighborhood countries. In our case, we have security agreements with the SADAC, with that kind of agreement not only in Sadak, but also with the American army. We have American specialists that come to the kingdom from time to time and from time immemorial to come and do what they call an exchange programs 
So what do you mean? Do you mean that when I can come to your studio in Washington right now, I find a black African from Eswatini or any other country in Africa engaging in your studios, whether it's internship or it's on a professional exchange program, that is an assassin. Not exactly, my brother. I would not know on what the extremists they are peddled lies, but the only thing that can happen in our situation, they have always been doing this as false flag operations, where they come here, do something very nasty and funny, they kill one police officer or two, they kill one soldier, like they did just this past weekend. And it's unfortunate. They are not even asking me or even sympathizing with my country. We have lost a commander in a military base. So are you suggesting that we are hiring hitmen to hit our own people? These are false flag operations. Althias Zumalo is the Eswatini government spokesperson. You are speaking with me from the capital, Mbabane. Schools reopened Tuesday in Malawi's two biggest cities, Lilongwe and Blantyre, after a two-week suspension caused by a cholera outbreak. The bacterial illness has killed close to 800 people, more than 100 of them children, and affected more than 25,000. Malawi's government announced measures to prevent cholera from spreading in schools, but warned it would shut down the schools again if needed. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. There was excitement among learners in schools in Malawi, which reopened Tuesday after the government shut them down because of cholera outbreak. To many students, especially those who are preparing to sit for national examinations this year, the closure doomed their hope of passing the exams. Ron Rutepo is a teenage student at Michiru View Secondary School in Blanta. He says returning to the school is the best thing he hoped for. Yes, I thought at home my mom was telling me to study, but being an ex- examination class, it affected me badly because we're always supposed to be here and ready for the exams. But if we're not ready, we won't get good grades. The reopening comes after the government announced that it has put in place preventive measures against the spread of cholera which is transmitted mainly through dirty water. These include fixing broken boreholes and water taps in the schools and burning the sale of cooked food around school premises. Malawi is battling its waste cholera outbreak in a decade. Government statistics show that as of Monday, it had registered 25,458 cases since the start of the outbreak last March with 550 cases reported on Monday alone. The disease has so far killed more than 800 people with around 1,000 hospitalizations as of Tuesday. Justin Rice Piri is the deputy head teacher at Michiru View Secondary School. He told VOA that the school has put in place measures to prevent learners from contracting the disease. At the same time, our support staff, the cleaners, the cooks, have been trained on how best to you know, prevent the cholera. And we've also given them the protective, protective wear, the gloves, you know, and um, the work suits and the like. The UNIS Children Agency, UNICEF, started distributing anti-cholera supplies in schools in areas most affected by the outbreak. Government authorities, however, 
have warned that they may close the schools again should the outbreak spread among students at an unmanageable level. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blantyre, Malawi. And that's it for this Wednesday, January 18th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for coming aboard with us this morning. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Barton, Washington, wishing that you will have a wonderful day. Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on The Voice of America.